together. Lord God, you are good. And Father, we cannot praise you enough. Lord, there does not come a point in time where giving praise to you ceases to be the right and only right response of your people. And so God, we praise you and we give thanks for the privilege that is ours. Lord, and as you have spoken through the truths that we have taken and the songs that we've sung and the prayers we have prayed to this point, all of which are derived from your word, we ask now that as we turn specifically to your word, that God, you would speak. Father, that we would hear the words that you desire, that we hear principles that reflect your person that might be applied to our lives in ways that draw us closer to you in the sense that we become more appreciative of the union that we have each been given, we who are your children in Christ Jesus. Father, a, a union so perfect as to sustain us from the moment in which we were brought to it until eternity. God, and so in light of this, we pray, you, I pray, that you would speak now through your word, for it is your word. God, would you remove error from my lips? Would you guard distraction from our ears and, and our minds? And Father, might we meet with you, we pray, in your word, for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles, would you open them with me to Psalm 65? Psalm 65, the psalm that was read for us earlier by Bob. And as I was praying about what the Lord would have us to hear as we conclude our year, he brought to mind a conversation that I had about a month ago with Mike Law, or Short Mike, as my children lovingly refer to him. And I'll let you guess as to the term of endearment that we employ for Mike Schofield. But Mike and I were speaking about God's Word and, and how exciting it is to study the Scriptures as it seems that every time we do, God teaches us something new. And even passages that we've read numerous times will, will lead us to a deeper and more profound appreciation for God's person, His presence, and His plans than we've previously held. And on this occasion, Mike was excitedly sharing with me an insight God had impressed on him that was drawn from a psalm and which had been enhanced that he simply meditated on it in several different translations. And the truth that had struck Mike this time was that of God's gracious provision. And it's a principle captured in the ESV Bible by the picture of a wagon whose tracks overflow with abundance. And after describing this image to me, Mike asked a searching question. He said, how does one know that their wagon tracks have overflowed? And before I could display any ignorance, he kindly answers, well, you've got to be looking behind you, Andrew, and your wagon has to be filled to overflowing. It's a poignant insight, wouldn't you say? And as you can imagine, that image stuck with me. And so later I went back to try and find the reference in that psalm. And unfortunately, I just, I couldn't remember. And have you ever had that happen where you want to go back and find this text and the gist of the verse is stuck with you, but you might even know in which place to begin looking, but as to the exact location, you're just lost. Well, I remembered the picture of the wagon and the tracks. And so I went on my phone and did a, a search of wagon tracks. And thankfully, there was only one reference in the psalms. Psalm 65:11, which reads, "You crown the year with your bounty; your wagon tracks overflow with abundance." 
Isn't that beautiful? Church, as we come to the close of 2018, I'd like us to consider how our wagon tracks are overflowing with the abundance of God's blessing. And I believe for some of us, this might appear at first glance to be an easy assignment as our 2018, as we look back, has been marked by what our culture views as success. Our income may have increased. Our family's been well. We've acquired new possessions, material things, stuff that just keeps getting bigger and better. And for many, we may look back at this year and easily count the things which have fallen off our wagon, so to speak. We just didn't have room for it all. We may have even had to make extra trips to Goodwill to unload, to help the falling off, so that we'd have room for the new and the better that came with Santa last week. But church, then I believe there are others of us, and more than a few, for whom 2018 has been a year we wish could have been unlived. We've lost more, it feels, than we've gained. We've hurt more than we have ever hurt before. Our lives have changed in ways that just 363 days ago we could never have envisioned. And yet, as God's people, we are still the recipients of the greatest gift ever given, who is Jesus. In this gift alone, our wagons have spilt over. And the tracks that are left behind have themselves overflowed. And so what I'd like us to do this morning is to hear the Lord speak, reminding us of His gracious provision so that we might be enabled to see the many ways in which He has filled our 2018 to overflowing. So, with that said, your Bible's open to Psalm 65. I'd like to read it again. Bob did a wonderful job, but I'd like to read it again with this thought in mind. And so would you follow along this song of David, Psalm 65, beginning in verse 1. Our psalmist sings. Praise awaits you, O God in Zion. To you our vows will be fulfilled. O you who hear prayer. To you all men will come. When we were overwhelmed by sins, you forgave our transgressions. Blessed are those you choose and bring near to live in your courts. We are filled with the good things of your house, of your holy temple. You answer us with awesome deeds of righteousness, O God our Savior, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, who formed the mountains by your power, having armed yourself with strength, who stilled the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their ways, and turmoil of the nations. Those living far away fear your wonders. Where morning dawns and evening fades, you call forth songs of joy. You care for the land and water it. You enrich it abundantly. The streams of God are filled with water to provide the people with grain, for so you have ordained it. You drench its furrows and level its ridges. You soften it with showers and bless its crops. You crown the year with your bounty. And your carts overflow with abundance. The grasslands of the desert overflow. The hills are clothed with gladness. The meadows are covered with flocks. And the valleys are mantled with grain. They shout for joy and sing 
And may God bless the public reading of his word. David's song of thanksgiving, which was most likely composed for a harvest celebration, opens with the declaration that God deserves our praise. God deserves our praise. Our NIV renders this truth with the words, praise awaits you. While if you have an ESV translation, it offers this first phrase as praise is due to you. While the Holman renders this as praise is rightfully yours. And interestingly enough, each of these efforts is merely a a metaphorical rendering of the original language, which is literally praise is silent to you or, or praise waits for you in silence, meaning God's goodness to his people. So those who dwell in Zion, God's goodness to his people so fills their lives that it constantly affords them new cause for praise. It doesn't cry out for attention, try to catch the eye of God's children. It's just there. Everywhere they turn, they encounter new cause for praise because God has so expressed his goodness to his people that there is no place to which they may flee and find his love and provision not already present. And so for this reason, David continues there, to you our vows will be fulfilled. Just as with the people's praise that sits silently waiting to be expressed as they encounter infinite expressions of God's goodness to them, so too will their vows find fulfillment. So there's no question that these vows or these pledges will be fulfilled because they're being made in response to God's character. God's character as revealed by his goodness and mercy. And as we know, God's character never changes. His mercies are, as Jeremiah reminds us, new every morning. His goodness marks as the psalmist sings his every action. Therefore, he deserves our praise. And church, as I was thinking about this principle, I was struck by how regularly I miss the point of what I believe David is singing about here. I offer praise to God when he provides me with what I want. And I'll I'll pray for a specific concern. Maybe it's a health problem, or maybe it's, it's a decision regarding the future, and when he responds, so too do I. My praise is, is almost a form of Christian currency, if you will, given in exchange for God's work on my behalf. But church, this is not at all what David, I believe, is conveying here. The praise which David describes, it doesn't sit silently in my pocket in the form of payment. It's like the air that we breathe. Our very existence depends upon, it's derived from this. God's goodness to us is such that we, were it to be withdrawn, we would cease to live. We, we don't have an existence independent from God and his goodness. It says, the apostle John declares in his revelation, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? Because you created all things and By your will, they were created and have their being. If God were to withdraw his gracious hand, then each and every one of us would cease to be. And therefore, our praise ought to be perpetual, just as is our breathing, for only God sustains it. And churches, I think back over the last 12 months, I can identify a number of instances in which I have, and I believe we have intentionally praised God. When God provided healing for Sarah and then for Shirley earlier this year, when God gave us wisdom in dealing with different issues as related to our facility as our trustees led us through different challenging processes, when God provided protection for our missionaries, Paul and 
Laurel, James, and Sarah, as well as Joey and Suzanne during trying times of travel, and as God faithfully led Bob and Wanda through 50 years of marriage, this year, we've praised God in each of these instances, and many others, but I have failed to praise Him as Paul directed the Thessalonians, always, and in all circumstances. Do you praise the Lord perpetually? Does your life breathe in God's goodness and breathe out praise? Or do you withhold such a response as payment for the fulfillment of personal requests? David declares that God deserves our praise for or because he is a prayer hearer. God is a prayer hearer. Verse 2 reads, O you who hear prayer, O you who hear prayer. In, in this designation, I believe that David is offering a description of nature, not simply occupation. In other words, God in his very being is the hearer of prayer. This is a part of who he is as revealed by the fact that those who dwelt in Zion, God's people, didn't have a corner on this divine character trait. Because verse 2 there goes on and says, to you all men will come. If you have an ESV translation, the phrase is given to you as all to you shall all flesh come, with the all flesh clearly portraying all of humanity. Now, I doubt that there are any here this morning who would deny outright God's ability to hear prayer. And if you're open this morning to the concept of God and to a God who is omnipotent and communicative, then regardless of what you call your God, he or she or it, here's prayer, I would imagine. Even the most spiritually insensitive today in our culture still bow their heads and close their eyes on occasion, but do their actions and beliefs reflect the reality of which David is singing? And I would argue not at all, not at all, for what I believe David is declaring here isn't the existence of an impersonal, remote, albeit divine entity like a, a call center to which we may make appeal when we're facing dire straits. Rather, David is describing a personal, supernatural being, God, who is good and who doesn't hear on occasion he just hears, period. He hears because he's God. And church, I am so convicted as I consider this reality because of how little I avail myself of it. Now, I'm not saying I don't pray, but I confess that my prayer life doesn't reflect a genuine appreciation of this divine character trait. And I bet that if I were to receive a weekly reminder of, of my prayer time, one that resembles those iOS updates that I start getting now on my iPhone. I don't know if you get those things too, but at the end of a week I get these, these reminders of how much screen time I've used and how much time I've spent reading internet scores of my favorite teams versus how much time I've spent in my Bible app or how much time I've read emails and, and surfed the web versus how much time I've spent in my discipleship apps. I guarantee that were I to get an update come the close of the week as to how much time I've spent in prayer, I would be mortified. But how often do you pray? Do you pray? Does your relationship with the God being described by David here in Psalm 65 reflect a knowledge of him being the prayer-hearing God? And if so, how? And sadly, church, I believe that this is one of the, the most glaring areas of weakness for us, and it has been for centuries, as evidenced by the reformer John Calvin's lamentation. This is 16th century. Could we only impress this upon our minds that it is something peculiar to God 
and inseparable from him to hear prayer, it would inspire us with unfailing confidence. I believe in 2018, we witnessed, Emmanuel, we witnessed God answer prayer in some powerful ways. We prayed for God to open doors to ministry, which he did. Hearts to open to the gospel, which he did. Eyes to open to see God's will regarding our future, which he did. But friends, I believe we still have a ways to go before we will exhibit a healthy understanding of this aspect of God's being. And so I want to challenge us this morning to consider making prayer a priority as we go into 2019. We meet every Tuesday morning for prayer. And I know not all can make it at 7.30, but we meet. If you are able, would you consider filling that room with yourself and others so that we might pray specifically for all that God is doing, praising Him for who He is? Would you pray, prayerfully consider taking a prayer directory? We have those available in the office that would lead us to specifically, intentionally lift up one another, praying patiently and fervently for one another to, be, to see God work and in and through His church be glorified. Let's make prayer a priority for ourselves, demonstrating that we appreciate God being a prayer-hearing God. David's song proclaims, God is worthy of praise, for He is a prayer-hearing God. He also sings of God's forgiveness. God forgives. Verse 3 reads, When we were overwhelmed by sins, you forgave our transgressions. And I find it so poignant that David's focus turns from prayer hearing as an attribute of God's character to the one thing that stops his ears to our communication. Sin. The prophet Isaiah informs us in chapter 59 and verse 1, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear, but your iniquities, your sins, so that which, that, which is, that we have committed, which we've done, that's contrary to the will and to the word of God, our iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Not he cannot hear, but he will not hear. And then this same truth is repeated in Psalm 66. So the psalm that follows the very psalm under consideration for ourselves this morning, Psalm 65. In Psalm 66, verse 18, we read, If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. So again, this is an issue of will, not ability, as the Lord would not have listened. Not could not, but would not. And here in our text, in Psalm 65, I believe that that as David is singing, he is acknowledging God's goodness and how people's response should be one of continual praise for God hears and God provides. However, we're sinful. And this defiance, willed defiance of God's character, of His will, His ways, our sin, which David knew all too well, our willed defiance of God's character means that the privilege we should enjoy, we don't enjoy. Until... He saves us. And this is the gracious act of which David is singing here. The blessing of those whom God chooses to bring near that they may live in his courts. In this supreme and defining act of love, God fills those he's chosen, those who will repent and believe. He fills those that he's chosen with the good that fills his house, which I believe is himself. 
And this, this is a holy filling coupled to a divine choosing, which I believe the Apostle Paul describes in his letter when he writes to the church that met in Ephesus. He writes, For he, God, chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. And then later in that first chapter, he continues, and you also, those who were followers of Christ, you also have been included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. That's himself. The promised Holy Spirit who has a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. In the 1986 drama, The Mission, Robert De Niro plays this reformed slave trader who's seeking redemption for his many sins. And he joins the mission, hence the film's name, a mission of a Jesuit priest, Father Gabriel, as they head to South America to convert these remote Indians, the Guarani Indians. And it's an incredibly depressing film. I don't recommend it for any other reason than this, this application. But there's this powerful scene in this film in which De Niro is pictured as carrying the remnants of his life through this jungle as a slave trader. He's carrying the remnants of his life as a slave trader through the jungle. He's determined, you can tell, to pay penance for his past. And at first he succeeds, despite the extra effort required. And this might even, as you watch the film, fuel his sense of meriting God's forgiveness of his past. However, he finally arrives at this massive waterfall, sheer cliff face that he simply cannot climb. And the film shows De Niro desperately trying to haul his past up this cliff face, this rope attached to which are the, the armors that he used to wear, the, the weapons that he carried while he was practicing his trade. And at the point that he's about to fall from this face because he simply cannot cling to it any longer, the priest arrives and cuts this rope. And his past falls down to the ground. It's just a powerful picture of God's grace and forgiveness. And it's a principle that to that point in the film, De Niro had stubbornly resisted. But church, that's the relief. That's the reality of the relief that every one of us knows who has by faith believed in Jesus. He's been, we've been led to repent of our sin and to follow Christ. It's been a number of years for me now. <laughs> growing every year, but I still remember that sense of relief, the moment that I asked God to forgive me for my sin, a tangible weight almost that was lifted. Do you know that freedom? The freedom from the entanglements of your past? Or do you still live with, with guilt, fearful of who you might run into in the course of a day, what you, what you might hear them say, who you might be with when you run into those who mark your past, the glory of the God to whom David is singing here is that he hears the prayers of those who are desperate for his forgiveness and he answers with, as he describes them, awesome deeds of righteousness as he saves. Our God saves. And that's, I believe, revealed by David's reference. Verse 5, to God our Savior. To God our Savior. And before anyone would throw out the objection, well, that might be fine, but this is Old Testament you're talking about here. This is a, a unique deity who did what he did at a specific time for a specific people at a specific point in time. 
But hear how David destroys those objections, those, those lies with, with what follows. He goes on, You answer us with awesome deeds of righteousness, O God our Savior, the hope of all the ends of the earth and the farthest seas. Church, this God's love is not limited to a single people. Although he clearly chose to reveal himself, his power and the extent of his love through his dealings with a specific people. No, the God of the Bible loves the world so much that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish or die because of their sin, will not perish, but will have eternal life. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. This is the, the good news that Jesus came to declare. God was establishing a new covenant through Christ as fully God Christ Jesus fulfilled God's law, the means by which men and women were enabled by God to know what sin was, exactly what it was, that from which we needed saving. As fully God, Jesus lived a sinless life, and therefore he merited, he deserved relationship with a holy God. But as fully human, Jesus was then able to take our place. So he took upon himself our punishment, the penalty of death which we had incurred because of our sin. Christ took our sin and gave us his righteousness. This which David is singing about here. He who formed mountains by his power, who stilled the storms and walked upon the roaring waves, God the Son, the Prince of Peace, the Word, Jesus Christ, he is the fear of those living far away. And yet he calls forth songs of joy as he speaks those words, come, follow me. Do you know this joy this morning? And have you experienced God's saving power? Because if you have, then you know the extent of this emotion, the fullness of this life transformation. God's saving isn't temporal or circumstantial, is it, church? It is eternal and it is complete. When we are brought to realize just who this God is and all that he's done for us, the only response that we may have is repentance and worship. And to this and this past year has been one of incredible joy as a church, as I've been privileged to watch men and women in our fellowship come to realize the reality of their sin and God's rich grace and forgiveness. I've even had the opportunity I've even had the chance to see my children come to know these truths. seeing their hearts broken over sin and realizing that while they may know about the gospel, they haven't asked God to forgive them. There's a very big difference between knowing about and having experienced the truths of the gospel and how they're good at seeing sin in other people's lives. But it's a big difference being able to acknowledge sin in your own life. And the moment that they ask God to save them, their sensitivity to sin went way up. Uh, they didn't become perfect by any stretch of the imagination. And our last week and a half with family has brought that to, to mind. But these life changes have been so radical, so marked by joy, that they can only be attributed to God. The God who so loves his creation that he continues to care for the land and to water the earth despite our sins. He provides the earth, David sings, with all that it needs. And he provides us with food. Why? For God lavishly blesses his people. 
God lavishly blesses his people. And this is the principle with which we began this message. And it's proclaimed here, verse 11, which in the NIV reads, You crown the year with your bounty, and your carts overflow with abundance. You know, I believe the NIV captures the truth that's contained in this metaphor. However, I prefer the ESV's more literal rendering of the original, which reads in this way. You crown the year with your bounty, your wagon tracks. There's that phrase. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. You read that phrase and can you just imagine an, an ox wagon or a Pennsylvania Amish horse cart in the bed of your vehicle there is just filled with the produce from your fields. You know, the picture that I have in my mind here is of sitting in that seat looking back over my shoulder. And, and as I do... The ground, which David has just told us here in our song, has the, the Lord's waters have drenched and leveled, and whose showers have softened. The, the ground reveals these deep ruts of a cart heavily laden with a harvest that's so overwhelming that it's spilled over the sides of that wagon. And as in its excess, that spillage has itself overflowed those tracks. You know, this is the picture, I believe, that David gives us as he considers God's blessings, which is crown the year. Such is God's love for his people, that he blesses them in a measure that's like Jesus, as he described in Luke 6, 38. And I'm sure you remember that story where he's warned his listeners against judging others. He urges them to forgive others so that they, in turn, would be forgiven to give so that they, in turn, might receive a good measure pressed down shaken together, and still running over. This is the extravagance of God's giving. An extravagance that's further expressed as David goes on in our psalm to explain how the grasslands of the desert overflow. The hills are clothed with gladness. So even the places in which no one dwells. So here the desert, if you have an ESV, it describes the wilderness. Even these desolate places receive such blessings that they Overflow. In other words, God's love isn't limited by his subject. He, he doesn't only demonstrate his being to those who bear his image. He, he isn't selective in that sense, so to speak. He, he, he simply is. He, he is a giving God and a lavishly giving God at that. Church, as we look back over this past year, I know that for some it has felt more like a wilderness than rolling hills, a desert than fields with flowers. And yet, as David sings, even in these desolate places, God's blessings are clearly seen as he covers the meadows with light and he fills those valleys that have been dark and shadow-like. He fills those valleys with signs of his grace. They, David concludes, shout and sing. And so as you sit in your own wagon, so to speak, and as you look back, over your shoulder to your 2018, what type of terrain have your tracks crossed? And how has God filled those tracks to overflowing? And I know in answering this question that we'll all be tempted to begin with reference to material possessions because that's just who we are. It's the culture in which we've been raised. But what I pray the Lord has enabled us to see this morning in David's song is how that which crowns our year flows from the God who deserves our praise. Why? Because he hears our prayers. He 
forgives our sins. He saves us from death, not physical death, but spiritual death. And he blesses. He blesses us with belonging in a family that loves and cares for us. And this family is the church. Now, your immediate family may belong to the church, but the belonging that God gives us is in himself with others who share that Christ union. He, he blesses us with belonging in a family. He blesses by meeting all our needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. He blesses us with the knowledge that, that we have nothing to fear because he has overcome. God has blessed us in ways that we so often fail to acknowledge because we, I believe, fail to understand him as he has revealed himself in his word. And therefore, we fail to understand his glorious purposes for us. I want to encourage you, church, to take some time in these days that follow. We only have a couple before 2019 begins, but I want to encourage you to take some time and look back over your shoulder, so to speak, that you might be reminded. Make a list of the many ways that God has blessed you. Look back. Look back before you once again look forward and press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called us all heavenward in Christ Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, you are good. God, often our circumstances cloud our minds to that reality, although it never changes our perspective does. Father, you never change, and yet we find ourselves at times in settings that are described in your word as valleys shadowed by death. Lord, and in times such as that, we often find ourselves fearful, questioning, wondering where your provision is and how we could be blessed. Lord God, as we sit at this very end of a year, which is in truth no different than any other day, Lord, they come and they go as Solomon describes in Ecclesiastes. There's nothing new. But Father, as we measure life, and as we look back on the measure of this past year, Lord, I pray that you would have helped us each this morning to be reminded of just how our wagons tracks have been filled to overflowing. Father, filled to overflowing by the one gift and that one gift alone, who is Jesus. Father, forgive us for so often failing to see in that gift the fullness of relationship with you. Father, the, the, the privilege of knowing you, of being able to look to Jesus and your words say that in looking to Christ, we see you. Lord God, would you remind us, have reminded us, will you go on reminding us, for we are a broken people who are prone to forget. God, would you bring to mind as we spend time in your word and as we spend time in prayer and in worship with your people, would you bring 
faithfully to mind your abundant blessing. Who is Jesus? Father, and above and beyond that, we each have so much. So much. Thank you. Father, might we, in light of this abundant blessing, be those whose hearts are overflowing in generosity. For as freely as we have been given, God, so freely we desire to give. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the knowledge that, Lord, you are our God and that none can take us from your hand. Therefore, we have nothing to fear. Lord, as we look to 2019, we do so with hope and with expectation that you will continue to be who you are and that, God, you will continue to grow us more and more in our appreciation of what you have done for us in Christ Jesus so that we might lead others to share in the hope that we have. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.